Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. And he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's no danger, and there is danger, there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom among the Jews, who the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis? and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. I'll just read one verse of the next chapter. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. Please be seated. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, thank you for all the events of this morning so far. Thank you for your Holy Spirit's presence with us. And we need your help uh, continually as we look at your word and think through things. Help the preacher, uh, help the, the hearers, help us all as we interact with your word. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit's presence in our lives, uh, working in us as we hear and receive this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. So you think of fear. Think of fear. Think of fear of man issues. I was on a church staff, and whenever there was an issue going on with people, and people were in their families having a struggle, 
uh, a coworker of mine would say, well, it's just fear of man issues, fear of man issues. And he had that phrase from somewhere, and he was right. It burned in. We have a lot of fear of man issues, fear of people, and they make us do a lot of things. Uh, somebody learning to drive. I think probably all of my kids that I've been teaching, they're very, very worried about what's ahead of them, but they're just as worried, it seems like, about who's behind them. Am I making this person mad? Am I going too slow? Am I doing... And it's like, stop. Don't be afraid of them. That's going to mess you up. You have a job to do. But we are fearful. We're fearful for our reputations. We're fearful for a number of things. I heard a woman say, she's one of my favorite commentators, in her Texas accent, I heard her, and she was talking about political issues, but she said this, and I, it, it jumped out at me because I was thinking of this text of riots and fear and, and circulating fear, and this woman said, fear equals control, control equals power. Fear equals control, control equals power. If they can get you fearful, then they can control you, and if they can control you, then they have the power over you. And we see fear equals control, control equals power. So I said, I wonder where she got that. I mean, she's a smart gal. She, she could come up with that on her own, but that's not new. That, that's something that's handed down. So I just went on my search engine uh, and, and looked this up, and I found a couple of quotes about this, about fear equals control and control equals power. And we're thinking of it in the context of, of this riot that we just read about and that we're going to talk about. Um, guy, who, no, no believer, Bert, Bertrand Russell. Some people are calling him Bertie Russell. But I, he's not Bertie Russell to me. He's, he was an intellectual. He was a British intellectual, wrote a lot of books. Had one of his books on my shelf called Why I Am Not a Christian and Other Essays. don't know if I still have it or not. He was an intellectual, not a believer, but he was an understander of the culture. And he wrote this. He said, Neither a man, nor a crowd, nor a nation can be trusted to do humanly or to think sanely under the influence of great fear. All truth is God's truth. That sounds like a, a biblical assessment of our culture and our lives and of us. Neither a man nor a crowd nor a nation can be trusted to do humanly or to think sanely under the influence of a great fear. Guy who's no doubt he would be canceled by now, except every single group would have to cancel him. A guy named H.L. Mencken, also no believer, but an observer. He insulted us all. He insulted. I was reading some of the stuff he read just to make sure it was okay to, to even reference a, a non-believer like that in the sermon. It's like he he, he influenced he. He insulted me. <laughs> Didn't take long to find that. But he wrote this, and it takes one to know one. Listen to what he wrote about fear equals control equals power. He wrote this. The whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by menacing it with an endless series of hobgoblins, most of them imaginary. Yeah, fear. We see a man promoting fear and controlling a crowd, and we see this crazy riot in the Bible days, and it reminds us so much of what we see going on in our country and culture today. Some guy named Adolf Hitler, 
1933, wrote this as he was planning. He said, the people need wholesome fear. They want to fear something. They want someone to frighten them and make them shudderingly submissive. Fear, the fear merchants that are there, and it pops out in our pages of Scripture this morning. The Bible, uh, Proverbs 26, 13 is talking about that. They're talking about the sluggard. It says, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. And fear being an excuse to not even go to work or go out and do your business or provide. Fear, fear, fear. And the fear-mongering that we see. And we realize this is not a new playbook. One of the best movies you could ever watch, Gary Cooper in High Noon. The townspeople are so afraid, and no one will stand with our lone hero. Whether it's fear that keeps those townspeople from backing up Gary Cooper's character in that movie, or whether it's fear in our day that drives people when they see somebody assaulted on the street, rather than do what they used to do and try and save and help and stop, what do they do? pull out their phone. Maybe they can get a viral video out of this and fear. That way they don't have to uh, put themselves in danger and step in as the Lord would have done and as the Lord did when he saw us incapable of saving ourselves and the only one that could die on the cross for us. Uh, the godly action is to, is to play through our fear. says in this text that Paul, quote, resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, go to Jerusalem, that's in our text, then he was going to Rome. In an unsettled world of topsy-turvy, everything crazy, Paul still said, I've got to make a a Christian plan. I still have to lay out a a plan for how I'm going to live for the Lord. Fear didn't even let him just curl up and and not, not do what he needed to do. He made his plan. So it says he made his plan in our first two verses of our text. He sent a couple people on ahead. Uh, and then uh, he was there. He's going to stay in Asia for a little bit longer. He said, I'm going to go to Rome. I have to see Rome. I have to do God's work in Rome. He had no idea he would get to Rome as a prisoner, and in the end he would have his uh, head lopped off for his faith, but he made his plan. A few moments in this sermon we'll talk about the Christian in fear, but right now I want to call your attention to a practical point that, that's here just right now. Do not let fear paralyze you from living. There's never a time to just pull into a fetal position and let the world pummel you. Sometimes the temptation for me is that. Uh, they're gonna, they, they hate Christians. They hate Christian values. Every movie they make now uh, takes some stab at, at God or the Bible. There's a lot of hatred. I'm going to just cover up and just let them kick and hope they don't get my, my head, my stomach, and places where I could internally bleed. That's not what we're called to do. And Paul continues to make his plan in the topsy-turvy world. He made his plan. He sent the associates on ahead. He stayed in Asia. And just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, (laughs) and here's the theme from Jaws (laughs) uh, coming, what happens? It says this in verse uh, 24 24 and 25. 23, actually. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Christianity used to be called the way. 
from Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is on in the end of his death. There's a way to live, a way to believe, a way to order your life. And, and there was no small disturbance about it. In other words, there was a big disturbance about it. Got just uh, five points, but they're quick, some of them, this morning. And point number one, the first motivation to fear, finances. Uh, the material way of life is threatened. Verses 24 and 25. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And then he went on to talk about how that wealth was threatened. If everyone becomes a Christian, and if everyone becomes a Christian throughout Asia, no one's going to come to this great temple. This temple for Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, I read things, and I, I didn't write them down if I remember them. Like 227 pillars is what I remember. 60 feet high. People would come all, from all over and look at this temple. This was one of the wonders of the world. The wonders of the world in our day are, are, are in our pockets on our phones. It's the internet. It's, it's, it's uh, computer-generated movies and, and all those things. In those days, they had to build them. The pyramids, <laughs> the hanging gardens. And people would say, how can people do this? How could they do it? They didn't even say, how could they? We say, how could they do it without electricity and tools? Uh, they didn't say, how can they do it with electricity and tools? They, they didn't know what electricity was and modern day power tools were. How did they do this? And people came from all over. They came to worship in Ephesus uh, this goddess Artemis, later known in, in English as Diana. And, and people say, how did they get Diana out of that? But, uh, but Artemis. And so they came to worship Artemis. And as they came, Okay, so let's, let's say you took a family vacation recently. Let's say you went up through the great, beautiful state of Iowa, and you drove through the Black Hills, and you got to Mount Rushmore. It's possible that somebody would buy or want to buy, or at least saw a lot of people buying little statues of Mount Rushmore as a souvenir of why they were there. That's a good thing. I've got the Statue of Liberty in my office uh, when I was there, I bought that as a remembrance of that and the symbol of freedom and all those things, and, and I have that. People would come and they would buy these little statues, and the silversmiths, some bought them as souvenirs, some bought them to worship them and to remember their worship, but they were making a boatload of money off the little statues. What if people said, wait a minute, Artemis is no god, she's nothing? She's just a figment. As he said, people are saying that, that who is gods are no gods. Uh, the money's going to dry up. And he took these craftsmen who were making their living, these silversmiths, off, off, off of selling these little souvenirs, these little trinkets. And he said, be very afraid. If Paul's message continues to go out, your family's going to be in the poorhouse. And he appealed to fear, absolute fear. There was a threat. And he said, the threat's not just local, but tourists won't even come to see our beautiful temple. Tourists won't even be here. And then it's going to hurt the rest of the region. And the tourist industry is gone, and we're all going to die of starvation and poverty. And he whipped them into a frenzy, got them to hate 
Paul's message, to fear Paul's message, therefore to hate Paul. That motivation to fear was financial. Number two, second motivation to fear. Deeper, actually. Worldview. Verse 27. The ones who might not have been afraid of money, what if everything they believed was wrong? He said, as he's whipping them up into this frenzy against the Christian gospel message, he said, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And all of a sudden he's saying, wait a minute, if Christianity is true, they might not worship our God anymore. Well, we try. Well, I, I, I do my level best to, you know, sometimes sinfully, to fuse the world and, and my Christian belief together. But when you look at Scripture and the more and more you see it, you go, wait a minute. These two don't have anything in common. If God is God, if there's an unseen God, a Trinitarian God, and there's only one God, then how can these other gods all exist? And what if I'm a person who's built my whole life around the code and the culture and everything that this all exists? I'm going to be a little afraid of these guys, and I might be afraid that Christianity is true because then I have to rethink. This is uh, even in Judaism, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes by night because he's intrigued by Jesus, and he comes, and Jesus says, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus wasn't stupid. He didn't think Jesus was saying, you have to become like little Louis and, and be born again and start, you know. He knew what Jesus, the rabbi, was talking to him, the rabbi. You've got to start all over. You've got to deconstruct everything you think. And just like a, a baby learning, you've got to grow and build what's true and get rid of the old. And the world looked at this, and, and, and this silversmith, he was instilling fear because of their money. He was instilling fear because of their way of looking at things. And the mob starts to riot. What if the gods that are made by hands aren't really gods? Well, I heard this this weekend. I, Listen to, I love, I love XM radio. I love the sports. I can go around the dial. I like to listen to the Iowa Hawkeyes, I think, for, for the game as much as for the seed corn commercials because it throws me back to my youth and the, the, the commercials for a supermarket called Hy-Vee. And ever since I was a little kid, littler than, than, than uh, Eve, I, I, was, I was hearing Hy-Vee where there's a helpful smile in every aisle. And they still sing that 50 years later. And I, I tune that in. But they have promos for other channels and other things. So Bon Jovi comes on. He goes, this is the, whatever, 30th anniversary of my album, such and such. He says, it changed my life. And maybe it changed yours as well. Well, we're going to play these tracks, and we're going to have this. I'm like, I can see where it changed his life. He made a few million dollars off of it. But, you know, I, I hope somebody doesn't say that's the album that changed my life. But there are people who, uh, and us, before we were believers, 
this movie changed my life. This, this series of whatever, these TV shows, this and all of this. What if, what if maybe those things that we looked at as gods that influenced us aren't really gods? And what if we're not so eager to purchase that? Maybe we can listen to it and just kind of enjoy it, tap our toes with it. I'm not saying smash it all up or anything like that. I'm, but, but what if it's not that big of a deal? And what if we all started thinking like what's really important versus what's not really important? I want all my money back from all that stuff that I, all those little statues of Artemis that I bought, all those trinkets, all those things, all those, uh, they were threatened economically, but they were threatened more because what if what we're saying is right? What if Jesus really is the Son of God sent to be the Savior of people? And what if there is no hope except in Jesus? And I'd have to be born again and reorient everything. And there was an appeal to fear. He got them whipped into this frenzy. You guys, it's going to cost you money. It's your way of life. Number three, the frenzied result of fear, rioting, confusion, and disorder. Look at verses 28 and 29. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, they were Greeks, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. And then you see the scene in this. If we could go there, and we read about it, but if you stop and think, if you could go watch these people yelling. Um, Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they'd come together, but they were there, and the anger proceeded. You look at pictures of, maybe you get to see some pictures and footage of riots, and even the mostly peaceful riots are not peaceful at all. And things burning and people smashing things and people forgetting that that's a human being there as they, as they jump on them and, and, and batter them because they're frenzied, they're out of control. You had an out of control. I saw somebody made a film of um, the movie 1984. I think I had to watch it in high school and I just saw a clip recently. The two minutes of hate. And they get all the people in the theater. And it, I'm not recommending the rest of the movie because I don't remember it. I hope there's nothing bad in, in the rest of the movie. And don't, but, but if you could, could look on your search engine and just, just type in two minutes of hate and see the footage of these people. And they show this guy on the screen and the whole crowd just have to scream and hate for two minutes. And that's what I picture going on in this theater. Just frenzied, screaming, hating. Great is Diana, or great is Artemis. Said, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, he was trying to talk to him. A, A Jewish guy, maybe a believer, maybe not. It doesn't necessarily say here. But he wanted to make a defense to the crowd. He wanted to call them down and just talk some reason into them. You hardly can talk reason to a a rioting mob. It says, when they recognized he was a Jew, then for about two hours, they all cried with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
we've been here for about however long. Not that long. Seems like five minutes to me, but maybe it's been. But think of people for two hours just chanting angrily together in a frenzy. That's what happens. The result of fear. And a rioting, fearful, angry mob pushed to a lawless point of no control. It's not unlike today when you see people behind a microphone egging people on, getting them whipped up, playing on their emotions to control them, to have a bigger picture that they control. No good comes from a whipped up, out of control mob that is running on their emotions. No good comes from it. If you're part of that, even if you go down to demonstrate for something you've prayed about and you think is right and biblical, if it starts to get out of control like that, you get out of there, Christian. That's not, no no good is going to come from that. The wrath of man doesn't bring about the righteousness of God anyway, right? So be careful. Next we see, point four. See, we're going fast. The fearful perseverance of God's people. So what's Paul thinking here? Paul says, I'm going to go into that angry mob. (laughs) Didn't work so good for Alexander. Paul says, I'm going to go in there. He says, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. My first point would be, see, if you're a Christian, God gives you and you're not afraid of anything. And I said, wait a minute, that's not true. We can't say Paul, in this case, was not afraid. Paul wanted to go in there. We can't say he wasn't afraid of what would happen in there. God's people are not immune to times of fear and discouragement. Classic case in the New Testament is Peter in his denial of Christ after the arrest. He was afraid. Uh, They had Jesus on trial. He denied him. And it was a fear of not wanting to stand with Jesus or wanting to fit in and blend in with the crowd. Uh, The great Peter could get afraid. Earlier in Acts 18, we preached about this a couple weeks ago. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. I'm with you. Paul had been afraid. Old Testament, Elijah in the wilderness. He was afraid of what was going to happen, the repercussions, even after God did all that great stuff, and he's lying out in the desert underneath that juniper bush, and he says, just kill me. And it was lonely, discouraged, afraid, and God had to speak to him in a still small voice and let him know he's not the only one. The greats, The greatest people have been afraid. Boy, what a terrible pastor I'd be if I'd said, don't you be afraid or that's a sin. No, Uh, acknowledge it. It's okay to be afraid. Was Jesus afraid in the Garden of Gethsemane when he contemplated what was going to happen? Uh, That's a good question. And I went back and forth on this. Was he afraid or was he just in total dread? All we know is he sweated as it were great drops of blood. And he said, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Now this was a, Jesus was a unique event in the annals of human history. No person has ever lived a perfect life except Jesus. No one has borne the sins of all of his people for countless, uh, countless people's sins. But in his humanity... He was looking on it with dread 
and willing to go. And I think that's more what Paul had in mind here. Paul was with dread. Esther in the Old Testament. Boy, what a hero she is for all of us. And, and she needed to go in before the king and she could die if he didn't lower that scepter when she went in. And what was her words? First, her uncle said to her, maybe you were born for such a time as this. And what did she say in her fear? I'm going to go. If I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. And so fear did not slow her down. Um, And we see Christians in our response to fear. Paul at this point was strengthened in the Lord. He wasn't afraid to face the mob, but his friend said, don't go in there. It says, even these people, the, the Asiarchs, the Asiarchs, did I write down what they were? They were people that were there to keep the peace. They were uh, not necessarily believers, but they were people that, that Rome had there to kind of keep things going on. They said, Paul, don't go in there. Bad things can happen. They were friends of his, and they urged him not to go in there. Maybe God had worked with them. Maybe he did feel fearless. But what, and maybe as we get older and we see the perspective on life, maybe the human fear disappears. Uh, Paul's last letter that he wrote was 2 Timothy. And what did he write to 2 Timothy in, in some of the last words before he was killed for his faith? He said, For God has gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self control. Contrast this with this mob. No love there, hatred. No self-control there, just chanting, whipped into a frenzy, saying whatever their masters, their slave masters who marketed the, the fear into them, told them to say. Here's another sentence from Paul in Romans 8, 5, 15. He says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery that returns you to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You're a little kid. Uh, and you're a little kid, and you, you see your dad in a, in a certain way. If you've got a dad that, that you can look at as a hero and, and a safe one. I know there were storms. There were, you know, with us it was the tornadoes. We didn't even know what tornadoes were, but we were scared of them. But boy, if dad was there, if I could hear his voice talking to mom, there was a calmingness in that. He said, God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of, of uh, um, sonship by which we cry, Abba, Father. So we see, in spite of Paul knowing it was going to be okay, there was still a wisdom and restraint in his fearlessness. Last point, the voice of reason in the riot that exposed the greater fear. God sent a voice of reason along with this frenzied mob. It was the town clerk. <laughs> so never... never don't forget to pray and vote for your town clerk. Town clerks have played a role uh, before. Uh, this town clerk looked at them. He quieted the crowd in verse 35. He said, men of Ephesus, we all know that Ephesians has our wonderful temple. We all know that our God, Artemis, is who she says she is. Let Artemis fight her own battles. Leave these guys alone. And he even spoke truth and reason and calming down as a non-believer. And God used him. He downplayed the threat. He said, Artemis, if she's who you say she is, she can take care of herself. These days we're looking in our country for politicians who will just say that even. Just live and let live. 
Pray for your leaders. That's why generally we pray for those who God's put in, in charge of us. And whoever's in charge, we pray for them. God, give them some wisdom. Ultimately, we would love them to come to know the Lord as we know the Lord. Even if they don't, Lord, let them be like the town clerk and not like the people who whip people into a frenzy and are fear mongers. He said, there's a court of law. He says, there's a greater fear that you have. You're in danger of being punished for rioting. You know, Rome is a, is a clear and present threat, and he appealed to a greater fear. There's a voice of reason in the riot, and God sent that at that occasion. Thank you, God, for that. So Paul could go on, and the gospel could continue. Now, series of ways to apply this. First of all, I want to remind us, there are levels of escalating fears. Control and power. But you know what? So on the one level, all financial and pocketbook. On the next level, our worldview. On the next level, though, there's a big dog called Rome that can come in and kill you. Where does it stop? Where does the power stop? It stops with our God, the Creator. It stops at the highest level. God, the Creator, the Sovereign Holy One. And he does not have to use fear to manipulate you. He just tells the truth. And I would say, if we're going to be afraid of this, afraid of this, afraid of this, afraid of this, uh, maybe we should look at all of them fighting on their lower levels, but maybe we've got to go to God and look at God. That's who to fear. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 26 through 28. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Okay? Let's not start at these lower fears and scare ourselves with all the what ifs. Let's go to the God and let's get ourselves right with God through Jesus Christ. Let's say we got a sin problem. Let's have the sins forgiven. Let's say we have habits that have formed out of those sins. Let's lean on the Holy Spirit after we've repented of our sins and put our faith in Jesus. And let's start there. And we don't have to worry about all these things that these poor people fear about. Okay? One, understand that people who are hostile and who threaten us as Christians are not necessarily motivated by hatred of us, but by their own fear that comes out as hatred. They probably don't hate you as much as it seems when they mock you and make laws and, and all of these things. Uh, they're just afraid. Remember what it was like yourself to be controlled by fear and have someone fan the flames of that fear. Put it in parenthesis, I'll just say it here. In our day, people who are deathly afraid of whatever the current flavor of COVID happens to be. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with being cautious. It's real. You take your precautions. You work your sanitation. You do what you have to do. You get pregnant, we don't know what it's like. 
You stay away from people. You do what you do to, to, to deliver that healthy baby. You do what you can, understanding all the various stories. They have to, some of them have to be lies because they're all contradicting each other. It can't all be truth because everything that they say is different, 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 different. We don't know. But you don't have to give in to that fear. You can be wise and, 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 and do, uh, as you pray about it, do what the right thing is, uh, as good as you know how for you and your family. But don't be controlled. But, but when you see people controlled with it and hateful, here's a guy who questioned some of the science and he dies. And Martina Navratilova, the tennis player, what's that got to do with anything she does? I'm glad he's dead. He deserved it. Oh, he, he, would, he wanted to kill me by, by warning. Wait a minute. But understand where she's coming from. She's fearful. And fear sometimes looks like hatred when it's not. It looks ugly when you see it in, in black and white. But it's just people are, are fearful and we do those things. So, so love even the people uh, that are so fearful they might even say hateful things uh, to you if you have a different path. Think of Paul wanting to go in and speak. Why was Paul wanting to go into that, that arena where they were just screaming in their frenzy of hate? You think he could calm them down? No. He looked at them. Remember where Paul said, I don't even regard people in the same way I used to. He wanted an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus and see what the Holy Spirit would do. That's why he wanted to go in and speak to them. His occasions of speaking were never on these surface issues. They were all about the gospel. I'm saying if his goal in speaking to them was to do what he always did, sharing the good news, that compassion is something that God gave him that he didn't have before. You know what? God gives us a compassion. We need to ask God for compassion for those who are whipped into a frenzy of fear. They may look at you as their enemy, but don't you look at at people as as your enemy. Guess what I'm saying is this, fight the real enemy, to quote a singer from a different context. The real enemy is not Demetrius the silversmith. Recognize him and be aware of him, but look beyond him. Christians being Christians really do rock the world's boat. They really do upset the apple cart. Christians really do kill the goose that lays the world's fool's gold of eggs. They really do stop the production of little statues to Artemis. There was a worldwide movement where every Christian, beginning with me, I prayed before I tune in a particular show or listen to a particular thing or buy a particular movie ticket, if I just prayed and said, God, all things are lawful, is it necessary? Can I do this to your glory? And then did it. But if I asked that question, (laughs) I could get some of my money back and I'd stop spending some of my money on some of this garbage. And I can understand people uh, saying, we want to make movies that, that, that hate you, that, that try and get your kids against everything that you believe, and now we're mad at you because you cancel your subscription service to our, our streaming. Um, you know, they want it both ways. Keep buying our stuff, and we'll keep talking about how Artemis is greater than your God. 
our commitment, if my commitment, is to please God in relationships and in my family and in my approach to things like pandemics and race and sexuality and retaliation and forgiveness, if I live Christianly, of course that's going to be a threat. Of course. Jesus said, expect it. They treated me like this, the master of the house. How are they going to treat the servants? And so expect it, but don't take a human weapon back for a human weapon. Our weapons are prayer and love. Our weapons are turning the other cheek and going the extra mile and giving our our cloak along with our, our, our shirt. Christians will prompt fear from non-Christians if they're living Christianly. That fear will look like hatred at some times and people will get stirred up. And Jesus said, expect it. Next point, just a couple more. Your trust in God, your fearing God, does not mean that you should abandon common sense as you live for Christ. Think of that Christian woman in Afghanistan who's got a death sentence on her. Those Christians, those people, those Christians. They're going door to door, looking for Americans, looking for Christians. You've got a Bible app on your phone, you're dead. You're not killing only Christians. They did this to a folk singer, Afghanistan folk singer. He'd sit and he'd play his little songs. I love my Afghanistan valley. I love my Afghanistan village. They came and had tea with him, the Taliban. Searched his house. They went away. Then they came back that night, got him, took him out and killed him. Why? Because their understanding, and maybe it's true, I don't know enough about Islam. They said in Islam, music is not allowed to be played in public. He's a threat. What if you're a Christian woman in Afghanistan and you're in trouble because you're a Christian and your neighbors know it? You go turn yourself in. (laughs) Hey, abuse me and then kill me because I'm a Christian. Uh, Well, you know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You know that if they find you and kill you, that you're in heaven forever and ever and ever, and whatever happened in this body doesn't matter. But you still don't go do that. You're like Paul. You live to fight another day. That Christian woman in Afghanistan, though death is inevitable, can plant gospel seeds in the life of her children. She can try to escape so she can live for Christ while she's here on earth. She's not afraid of the final outcome when they do kill her, but she is not to pick her time of martyrdom. Let God pick that. Just live for Christ. Paul, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Pray for and appreciate the nameless town clerks of the world. I already said that and made a little joke about that. But understand that God does use his people. They don't have to be Christians even. You pray for all people. God can use a non-Christian to, to preserve the, the going forth of the gospel. And so you, you pray and you engage and if the Lord leads you to, to participate, if you live in a place with elections and you can vote, and, and, uh, and not only the voters, but the people who count the votes are honest, uh, then maybe you can get a, a somebody that can, can preserve freedom. For us as a congregation, and then one quote, and then we're done. For us as a congregation, let's keep living the life we were called to live. Do your jobs, love your families, love your church family, come and worship the Lord, and understand that God will give us everything we need when this fearful world rises up and threatens us here, as it is doing to so many Christians around the world. How do we live 
in a world dominated by fear? Well, somebody sent me a quote this week. His initials are, are Steve Temple. He sent me this quote by C.S. Lewis in 1948. The war had just finished. Nuclear war was threatened. The big thing was a nuclear bomb. Anytime that bomb could go off and disintegrate us. How do Christians live in light of a nuclear bomb? How do we live in light of the latest COVID? I think they're calling it COVID mu. Uh, that's a Greek letter. It's like the equivalent of M for us, kind of, if you want to. You know, so we've gone from, uh, what was it, Delta we're on now, whatever. So D, there's EFG, but they, they chose mu. I don't know how they chose, choose these names, but we're on that. That's the next strain that's going to come. Oh, fear, 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 tremble. Um, how do you live? Well, he said, how are we to live in an atomic age? This is C.S. Lewis. How are we to live in it? And then I'm quoting it, then I'm praying, and then we're going to the table. So, so hang in there with me on this. This is so perfect for, for this text and for our day. How are we to live in an atomic age? I am tempted to reply, says Lewis. Why, live as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age, yay, Vikings, when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of chronic pain, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, and an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us are going to die in unpleasant ways. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in, with and in which death itself is not a chance at all but a certainty. The first action is to pull ourselves together. If we're all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, then let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint in a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about death. They may break our bodies, a microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. We Christians, we're sensible, we follow rules, you know, play along with our little game if you think it's a game. Uh, you want me to do now? Yeah, do it, it's not going to kill you. Or don't do it if it's violation of scripture. But you live for God and you love your family and you, and, and you, you, you teach your kids the Bible and you pray to God and you plant a tree. Uh, the famous quote attributed to Martin Luther, he said, what, do you, what would you do if, if uh, you knew God was coming back tomorrow? He goes, I'd plant a tree today. Just live for God. Whatever godly living is, beginning with confessing your sins and, and, and being a Christian, then just live for God and let God take care of this big stuff. You do not have to live in fear. These poor silversmith, these poor people, fear, 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 and you see where it got them. Perfect love casts out fear. Let's go to the table because I see the, our, our, our friends are, are gathering back here. So it's, it's time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you.
for uh, today. Thank you for your word. Help us, we pray. Thank you for this table. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is